Good morning. The sermon text this morning is from Jeremiah 52, verses 1 through 11, page 683 in the Pew Bibles. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For, because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of a gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamat. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. This is the word of the Lord. word of the Lord, right? I'm going to have you turn uh, one page over and go to the book of Lamentations. I, I asked Jim to read that text because I wanted uh, the historical uh, background, if you will, uh, to the book. And so that's the reason why I, I had that. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that here in just a, just a second here. Have you ever struggled... Uh, trying to figure out how to respond uh, to a tragedy. Uh, for those of you who are old enough here to remember, I can't believe I'm saying that right now, but uh, to remember 9-11, um, do you remember those feelings in your soul? What do we do? How do we respond to this? Uh, I was actually in Canada. I was visiting Anuk. I flew uh, to Canada on September 10th. I uh, flew through Boston on September 10th, and uh, they, they canceled my flight, and uh, they told me I was going to have to fly out the next day. Well, I didn't have any money. I had no place to stay, and I wasn't going to pay for a hotel or anything. And so long story short, I'll save you all the details, but uh, I finagled my way onto uh, uh, an air flight. This was, of course, you could go right up to the gate. And I found one more flight going to Bangor, Maine, where I was trying to get to. Uh, then I was going to drive across the border. But um, I uh, 
I, yeah, I, I just went up to the gate and said, hey, I'm supposed to be on this flight. And God, in his mercy towards me, uh, had me get on the flight, and I took off. Could never do that today. But then the next day, I woke up, and then I saw what had happened. I remember, like, what do we do? I mean, I had anger, I had frustration, I had fear, I had all those different things going through my soul. How should Christians respond to Hamas's attack on Israel? What do we do with this? I mean, this has happened, it's going on in our world right now. What do we do with that? What about the 18 people who lost their life in Maine because of one man's rampage just a couple days ago? Again, we have friends that live right there. They live right down the street from this guy's house. Um, how, do we, how do we deal with that? What can we do about the gang violence in Haiti, homelessness in San Francisco, the ongoing conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the drought in Ethiopia, the hunger in Somalia? I could go on and on with all the different calamities in the world, and then you have your own personal things, and I do too. How do we deal with this? A number of things that we can concern, be, should be or could be concerned about is overwhelming. And that's one of the difficulties of the Internet age is that we're aware of so many more things. And how do we deal with it? It's hard to know what we can do or how we should respond. If you find yourself not knowing how to respond to tragedy in the world, well, this sermon series that we're starting from the Book of Lamentations is for you. And if you find yourself in a personal tragedy or suffering, this sermon series is for you. And if you think you may have personal tragedy or suffering, or you may be aware of suffering in the world in the future, this sermon series is for you, all right? So it's for all of us today. So here's what we're going to do in this first sermon series, the first sermon of this sermon series. It's a five-week series that we've planned for this to give an overview and kind of explain uh, the book of Lamentations to you. And study, it's been a fruitful study in my own soul, continues to be, and I pray it is for you. So here's how we're going to do in this first one. It's a lot of background, I'm kind of getting our bearings here. So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to investigate what we know to be true of the book of Lamentations, and then we're going to seek to understand the nature of lament. What does it mean to, what is lament, and, and what is it in, in, in the nature of it, and then, and that's for the sole purpose in the end, so that we may appreciate the gift that lament truly actually is. So today's sermon, this is how we're going to break it down. We're going to break it into, uh, first of all, uh, investigating the book. We're going to seek to understand uh, lament, and then we're going to look to appreciate the book of Lamentations and the gift of lament, okay? That's kind of the frame where we're going today. Let me pause, ask God's blessing, and, uh, and then we'll get going uh, with this. Father, we need you. This is not an easy book to teach. Um, I'm still wading through this, and there's so many things that have been helpful to me and uh, so far in this study, and I look forward to as I continue the study for the next several weeks of how it's a blessing. But Lord, I pray that be not just something that I'm enjoying. I pray it would be helpful to our church here and all those who are listening. I pray as a result of our time together in this book of Lamentations, uh, that, that we would, A, have a better uh, understanding of the book and that we would appreciate what you have given to us in uh, the, what is called lament. So I, I pray for your Spirit's guidance, and, and I pray that everything I say would be faithful to the Scriptures and it would be led by your Spirit and that you would be honored um, as a result of our gathering together today. 
uh, remove distractions, help us focus in on this, and uh, we're thankful for your word. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. First of all, let's look at this book of Lamentations here. And so I've asked you to turn there, and so to turn the page, it's page 685, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats there. What do we know about the book of Lamentations? And so whenever we're looking at a a book of the Bible, one of the first questions that we look for is, okay, who wrote the book? Where did this come from, right? And so uh, who wrote the book of Lamentations? Anyone know? Technically, it's anonymous, okay? Uh, you, can, you can read all five chapters, and you're not going to find a name. And it, now, uh, someone said Jeremiah. I don't know who said that. Someone said Jeremiah. That's kind of tradition, and I think it's a good tradition. Uh, there's some reasons why tradition has attributed the book uh, to Jeremiah. One of the reasons is that uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which was popular in the first century. It was popular even before then, but it was uh, a very popular around Jesus' time when he was walking on the earth, is that there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and in that, they actually attribute the book of Lamentations to Jeremiah. So, that, that would be a, an argument in the favor of that. Another is that the material picks up right where Jeremiah leaves off. And so what uh, Jeremiah uh, talks about, and this is what Jim read for us, is the, the fall of, uh, of Jerusalem and then Zedekiah being put down and really the David's reign coming to an end, all those things that Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, talks about, leads up to, warns about, and then it actually happens and it ends. Lamentations is a response to that. And so it makes sense that Jeremiah may have continued that. There are reasons to think that Jeremiah didn't write it himself, but my take is that Jeremiah wrote the bulk of it. uh, And other details were added to give us the final form of the book that we have today. And some of the reasons for that is that there's some um, information that probably that Lamentations records when Jeremiah was not there anymore and then even after his time. And so uh, it seems that there at least some of this book was, was added to make the final, to kind of add the details to, to round it out for our final copy that we have. But I believe, my personal belief, is that Jeremiah did write the bulk of it, even though the book is anonymous and we can't know that 100% sure. So then that leads to the next question, okay, what's the purpose of the book? I've already alluded to it a little bit here already. It really is a response to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Some historical books will say 587. It depends on the dating of it. But right between most of them say 586. That You'll see that, that there was, uh, when Jerusalem finally fell, uh, there was a siege that led up to that a little bit before then. Uh, but the, when the city was destroyed, it was in 586. And this is the response to that. Lamentations is this response to Jerusalem being uh, being taken. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, uh, had risen to power. They had uh, defeated the Assyrians, and Babylon became to the, the number one uh, world power at that time, came into Jerusalem and uh, took the city. And, and Jim read for us in, in Jeremiah 52 uh, that, uh, that account of the last king, King Zedekiah, uh, being, being put down for this. Uh, Jeremiah 21 uh, we won't take time to go there, but in Jeremiah 21, uh, Jeremiah is prophesying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take 
uh, Jerusalem. And so he's promising this. He's saying this is what's going to happen. You've got to understand, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was raised up by God to, to warn, and he's been doing this for years and years and years that this was going to happen. Second Kings 24 and 25 is also another text that records what Jeremiah uh, 52 records as well. So you could go to the book of Second Kings 24 and 25 towards the end of that book, and you'll read the same account. There's a little bit more detail in there, but uh, you'll read the same account that was just read for us in Jeremiah 52. You see, God had warned Israel of this potential 900 years before, back in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God had said, a blessing before I give you to this day, if you obey my commandments, you will be blessed. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. And he even talks in very vivid language 900 years earlier that there is going to be an overthrow, that, 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 that the enemies will rise up and that they will be destroyed. Uh, Israel would be destroyed. God had promises 900 years earlier if Israel disobeyed. And of course, Israel did and repeated over and over again. You see, uh, Jeremiah, he had warned of this event for 23 years. He talks about this in, in uh, chapter uh, 25 uh, of the book of Jeremiah. He says this, he says, that, uh, that God is going to, to bring and he's going to use the, uh, the, the Babylonians for uh, judgment. He says, for 23 years, this is Jeremiah 25.3, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Abnon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Later on in verse 7, he says, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger the work of your hands by your own harm. Later on, he says, I will devote them to destruction. That's the same language, if you remember from language from the conquest. What Israel was going to do to the enemies is that they were going to be devoted to destruction. The same was going to happen to them. We see in later on in chapter 25 of Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, to Jeremiah, take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath and make all the nations of whom I send you drink of it. And so over and over again, Jeremiah has had a long ministry of 23 years of, uh, to Israel, uh, to Judah, saying, please repent, please turn away. Over four different kings, by the way. Four different kings during the 23-year uh, reign or, or time of prophesying, and yet they did not. And so Jerusalem is captured and destroyed. Now, one thing I need to make sure that we understand uh, as we're continuing the sermon series or we begin the sermon series, this suffering that is going to be talked about, that we're going to read about in just a little bit here, this suffering is directly connected to Israel's disobedience, okay? There's a direct line. Not all suffering in the world and not all suffering that you and I experience has that direct line to sin or disobedience. We need to make that clear. Now, there's an indirect line. There's a jagged line to it because if there was no sin in the world, we'd have no, no, no curse, no, promise, no, no problems, things like that. So there, there is a connection, but it's not a straight line. Uh, but here, there's a straight line here. So as the principles that we're dealing with this, of uh, how to deal with suffering and stuff, we just got to keep that in the back of our mind. We're, we can still make principles, but we just have to understand that there is a slight difference here, that there's a straight line between Israel's disobedience and um, 
into suffering. Now, that may be true of people here. There may be suffering that happens as a direct line uh, or direct result of disobedience, but we need to be careful not to assume that all suffering is that direct line uh, straight back to disobedience. We just need to make sure we have that understanding here. Okay, so we're investigating the book. We say, okay, who wrote it? Don't really know. Probably Jeremiah, or at least a bulk of it. What's the purpose of this book? We're going to read about this. This is a response. Jerusalem has just been destroyed, and this is the response to that was happening. Gave you a brief kind of historical survey of that here. Now there's one other part about the book that is, is really interesting, and it's the structure of the book. There's, there's a structure to this book of Lamentations that is actually really helpful and interesting to us. Now, normally, I'm not really super concerned about structure, although it's important. And in one of my uh, classes uh, in seminary, I had a professor, and uh, structure was so important to him. I have never seen a professor where structure was so important to him. So we, we have to read a bunch of books, right, for the class, and we get together and we have to discuss them. We have to write book reviews and papers and things like that. And so I'm all ready to go, and we're going to discuss these. And my thought is we're going to discuss content of the book. For the first two hours, he wanted to discuss structure. Why did the author put chapter 13 where he did and not put it as chapter 1? Let's discuss. And I thought, I don't know. Ask him. <laughs> yeah, the author's still alive. Give him a call. I don't know. You know, like, I'm ready to dive into like the, the, the content of the book. But for him, and then when I, I remember one of the papers that he graded, he was like, you know, you might want to have this structure different. I was like, man, structure is really important to this guy. Okay. Um, now, it is important though. It actually is important, and particularly in this book, particularly in this book. How this book is laid out is very, very interesting. This is actually five poems, okay? That's what this book is. There are five poems. There's actually five funeral poems, if you will, called dirges, if you want a technical literary uh, term there for it. Um, and each chapter is an acrostic, Okay, I don't know if you knew this or not. Some of you may have known, but each chapter is an acrostic. What that means is, and it uses the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in it. And so, like in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 starts with Aleph, and it goes all the way down to Tau, okay, where the, the last letter. So it would be like A to Z. Okay, so it just kind of goes through um, all the way through. Chapter 2 is the same way. You get to chapter 3, you'll notice that there's 66 verses in chapter 3. That's because there's three verses for each letter, back to one each and four and five. And so it's really a literary masterpiece that's been laid out um, of, in an acrostic form. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. It actually takes some time. And so there was there recently I was in an email thread and they were making puns back and forth and I didn't have any puns to make. And so in my response, I did an acrostic of the topic that we were talking about. And I don't think anyone picked up on it because obviously I'm not a poet, okay? And I'm not very good at this stuff. But these are masterpieces in many ways. But the question to ask is, what was the author going for? Was Jeremiah and whoever else, were they just going for, okay, I really want to just have this literary masterpiece here that I'm going to do that, so we're going to do acrostic. No, that's not the reason why. So why did they use acrostics? Well, you know, one theory is as a memory aid. Um, it kind of helps you remember things in an oral society where tradition is passed along orally. That would be helpful. I, that, that's possible. 
possible. I think when you study the, the content of it, that's less probable in this case. In other cases, I would agree. Probably not so much in this one because it's very chaotic, um, but that's possible. Uh, another one is that it symbolizes completeness. All right, A to Z type thing. The poem covers uh, its painful subject, uh, you know, from the beginning letter all the way to the end of the alphabet. It's kind of like, I don't know if you know, uh, the logo of Amazon. Uh, I don't know if you've ever known the reason why the arrow is there, uh, because they sell everything from A to Z. That's the reason why they put that there. I don't know if you knew that or not. Okay, some of you, this is the only thing you've taken away from the sermon uh, right here. It's like... Makes sense. Okay, all right. You're closing your Bible right now. No, 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 no. Okay, all right. But no, that's the reason, A to Z, okay? Um, and so maybe that's why they did the acrostic that way and the same thing. Um, I think what it does is, is, is one person, they said this, um, uh, they said, it places artistic constraints on the lament, thus keeping it from deteriorating into an uncontrolled wail, howl, or whine. And there's an artistic constraint there. And, and the other thing I believe is probably most helpful is that it actually gives order to chaos. What they're dealing with here in the subject matter is very chaotic, and we're going to hear about that in just a minute when we read chapter 1. It's, it's, this is very chaotic, and it's a chaotic subject matter. And so if the author, though, puts it in a very organized way to show that no matter how chaotic life is, God's steady hand is in the midst of wrath and chaos. And so I think that there's, there's a lesson there for that. So there's a structure of the book. Okay, so we've investigated the book. We could spend a lot more time uh, looking at different details of it, but I think that's enough information to get us going. And that's a, kind of a, a good idea of, okay, here's where we're at with the book. You know, all the kind of the main things here. Let's move to understanding lament, though, because lament is, 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 is kind of foreign to us. In our society, I would say. Uh, at least I believe it is. Uh, it's not something that is, is very common in our culture as much as it is in other cultures. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves, okay, what is lament? And really, how is it any different than just complaining? Um, is there a difference between lament and complaint here? Uh, I believe complaint is part of lament, but it's not merely a complaint here. We, we see lament in different psalms, and we'll be reading some of those psalms over the next uh, uh, several weeks here. Probably they will serve as our sermon text uh, scripture reading instead of the actual chapter. We'll read a psalm of lament instead. Most likely, but Psalm 3, Psalm 10, Psalm 13, 44, 63, 69, uh, 74, 79, all of these are different psalms of lament that you will see. And you can kind of understand what's, what's happening there. Um, but a lot of people, they're, they're, they're not really comfortable with this idea of lament. In fact, uh, this book here, uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, uh, talking about lament, uh, guy by the name of Mark something, I can't pronounce his last name, starts with a V. Um, but this is a, a, a helpful book. He says this, he says, I have found that many people are afraid of lament. They find it too honest, too open, or too risky. But there's something far worse, silent despair. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Okay? And so lament, what lament is, it's, it's really pouring out our hearts to the Lord in a very chaotic time. Lament directs our emotions by prayerfully vocalizing our hurt, um, our questions, and maybe even our doubts that we have as we go to the Lord with those. Because we have to understand that suffering and silence is not a virtue, even though many of us believe it to be so. 
Suffering is completely alone and in silence and not talking to anyone, particularly God, about it is not a virtue. We often prefer, prefer just to stew in silence rather than to go to God. We have to understand that as we're trying to understand what lament is, lament does not always lead to immediate solution. And we're going to see that in the book here. There's no neat and tidy ending to this book. Uh, and that's by design because lament isn't, isn't about that. That's not what lament is. Um, lament's not a formula. Rather, it's a song that we sing or a prayer that we say, believing that one day God will answer and restore. Lament invites us to pray through our struggles, as one author said, when life is far from perfect. And so here's how I would define a lament for us. It's a prayer for the space in between pain and promise, in between heartbreak and hope. That's what lament is. It's, it's that prayer for that space, that time between heartbreak, you've dealt with heartbreak, you've dealt with, with pain, and then you, you're not at the promise stage. You're not at the hope yet. What do you do in between those bookends? That's lament. Lament is a prayer. It's a time for that space in between heartbreak and hope. That's why we've called this series Lamentations from Heartbreak to Hope. It's not an emotional outburst, but rather a thoughtful expression of grief and anguish. This is one of the other reasons why Lamentations is very orderly in its presentation, even though the subject matter is very chaotic, as we would also see in Psalms of Lament as well. So Lament is about real pain, confusion, or even doubt, but it leads to expressions of hope and belief of wanting that, and you see that uh, in this book, and we'll also see this in the Psalms that we'll look at as well. So really... It reminds me, remember that time where Jesus was, was, uh, was walking along and someone came up to him and asked him to heal his child. And he says, hey, can, can, you, can you heal? And Jesus says, you know, I, I, I can if you believe. And you remember the response? He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> Do you remember that? I love that verse. Because, I mean, I'm there. And this is, that's what lament is. It's that space where you want to hope and you want, you want the promise and you believe it to be. It just hasn't been realized yet. And there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of confusion. And, and it's that space. It's, it's a prayer for that time right there. And it's a beautiful, beautiful gift from the Lord. So lament is a gift to humanity that even Jesus himself took advantage of. Remember in the Garden of Eden when he was, he was asking God and pleading with God. And then even on the cross when he says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself prayed prayers of lament in his humanity. Why? Because that's, that's what God's given to us for those moments. So we've investigated the book a little bit. Now we're trying to understand what lament is. and We're, we're defining it as a prayer for that space between pain and promise, between heartbreak and hope. Now how do we appreciate this book? What do we need to understand about lament in order to appreciate it? Let's read chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll talk about this, okay? Chapter 1 says this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. He's talking about Jerusalem. How like a widow has she become she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. 
She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness is it was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Let me stop there for a second. You're going to get different voices in the book of Lamentations. Sometimes it's a voice of an individual. Sometimes it's the voice of the city. Here we've transitioned to the voice of the city crying in response. End of verse 9. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan, for they search for bread. They trade the treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me when the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he set fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. And the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My, ears, my, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves, and the house is like death. They heard my groaning, and yet 
There is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you. And deal with them as you have dealt with me. Because of my transgressions. For my groans are many. And my heart is faint. There is some powerful emotion there. This is, this is a, the voice of someone who is, who is dealing with chaos and pain and tragedy. And in this case, as a direct result of sin. In verse 5, it talks about, actually in verse 18, it says, the Lord is right. I've rebelled against the word. There's no argument there. There's an understanding of sin. In verse 5, it, it makes it very clear that, that uh, it's the Lord that's doing this. Babylon is the means, but it's, it, it, it's God who's doing this. We see here, and these are hard things. So how can we appreciate lament? What is there to appreciate about this? And, and, and how is it something that, that it would be helpful to us today? How can this inform our prayer life? Well, let me just tell you some of the blessings of why lament is a gift here. First of all, and there's a few of them here. First of all, lament is a divinely approved way to process pain. It's a divinely approved way. And this, this, this example that we get in Lamentations, this example that we get in the Psalms of Lament, we see just this raw crying out to God, not in, a, not in an accusatory way, not in a, in a judgmental way towards God necessarily, but in a way of saying, God, you're doing this. Please help me. Please help this situation. Lament embraces grief, but it looks forward to hope, no matter how dim the light of hope may, see, may seem in the moment. Why do we see that, that there's looking forward to hope? Well, because this person, or in symbolically this city, is still praying to God here. It's not giving God the silent treatment. This, this is saying here, it says that in, in verse 23, let all their evil doing come before you. Well, he's, he's still praying to the Lord, still uh, asking him, because he understands that the hope is only in God. And so lament is a divinely approved way to process pain. Here's another benefit of lament is that it awakes the sleepy soul. When we start to deal with, with difficulties in the world and we start to deal with pain that may be in your life, and I don't know what's going on in your life, what tragedy may be going on in your life, uh, and maybe it's, it's, it's something that's very personal and that you haven't shared with anyone or very few people know about, but how do you deal with that? What that should do is that it should awaken our soul. That pain that you feel that should awaken our souls because when things are going well, we often aren't thinking about spiritual things. When things are going well, we're just enjoying the moment. We're not thinking about God. But what lament does is it awakens the sleepy soul. We mourn the sin in the world around us. I mean, when was the last time we just, we just mourned the sin that's all around us? Instead of being angry about something, instead of, you know, looking down at people or just being like, ah, I can't believe the world's so bad and this is so terrible and all this stuff. Why does that say we just mourned it and we just cried out to the Lord? Just prayed and said, God, this world is bad. Lord, you deserve people to follow you and this world does not follow you. Lord, our nation is sinning against you. Forgive us. Forgive us. Was I said we mourned our own sin? 
are just moved in our heart where we know that we've sinned and we know that we've, we've, we've transgressed the law. And instead of just saying, okay, God, you know, I've, you know, please forgive me and move on, it's this idea of, you know, we have to mourn this. And not because we're trying to uh, um, uh, do penance, not because we're trying to you know, make ourselves feel really bad, you know, because I, I don't want to teach that. But what I, am seeking, what, what I am trying to say is that we just need to make sure that we see sin for what it is. You see, that's what lament does is here is it's seeing sin the way God sees it. And that's the beauty of verse 18 there, as I pointed out. The Lord's right. I rebelled against his word. He's right. I'm agreeing with God about this. In fact, that's actually what the word confess in the New Testament means. It comes from two different words, two different Greek words, homologeo, and it has the idea of same and word. And so to confess means to say the same thing as, or to agree with someone as, and in this case, you agree with God. You say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. That's what lament does. Lament says, I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying, yeah, bud. Or I'm saying because of the, the culture I grew up in or the house I grew up in or you don't know the work environment that I have. You know, that's the reason why I'm always so angry or that's the reason why I'm in a bad attitude or everything. We're, we're not excusing it anymore. Lament just rips away all those excuses and awakens the sleepy soul and just says, I'm just going to agree that my sin is sin and God, I am sorry. You see, this is why it's, it's a gift to us. It's because forgiveness is available. There's hope. But we have to lament the sin that's in our hearts and rejoice in what God has done for us. Lament awakens the sleepy soul. It reminds us that our only hope is in God. The author of Lamentations, as I said, has no problems attributing the destruction of Jerusalem to God. As I said earlier, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were the means, but God is the one orchestrating these events. It's very clear in this chapter, and it's very clear in the entire book, very clear in Jeremiah, very clear in 2 Kings 24 and 25. But what that does is instead of distancing us from God, it actually leads us to God. It leads us to hope in God. These events are not happening outside of his control. These events are not happening without him having some sort of controlling hand over it. And so we can go to him. If these chaotic events were happening outside of God's power and his control, then we wouldn't go to God for hope. And this is the thing we've talked about for years here. We've said the two things about God that we have to believe are true. In order to give him anything in life is that, that he's powerful, he's all-powerful, and he's good. And he has to be both. He's got to be good because if he was all-powerful but not good, he would use his power, but then the goodness wouldn't govern that, and he could use it to our destruction and for, uh, not, uh, uh, for our pain and not our good. But if he's all-good but not all-powerful, then he can have the best intentions of the world towards us and want what's good for us, but he would be powerless to make that happen. And so God is both good and powerful. And that's why lament leads to hope. It's because when we're, we're processing the pain and we're crying out to the Lord and we're being raw with our conversation with God, at least because we're actually hoping in him. We're not ignoring him. We're not giving him a silent treatment. We're not trying to suffer in silence. That's why it's a gift. It reminds us that our only hope is in God. Next, lament energizes our prayers for Jesus to return and set all things right. You know, when things are going great in the world and there's not a problem with things in the world, I kind of, kind of think Jesus can delay his return. It's okay. Things are going great. I remember as a kid, my grandfather would tell me, you know, I'm just praying for Jesus to return. And I would be like, well, you've lived your life. So, he, yeah, I haven't lived my life yet. There's a lot of things I want to experience, okay? There's a lot of things I want to deal with. And so, you know, if Jesus could just wait a while to return, that'd be great. And my grandfather would kind of smile at me and he'd just say, as you get older, that'll probably change. And he's right. 
I can't wait for Jesus to return. Comes back and sets all things right. When, when we're mourning sin of our land, when we're mourning the sin and the things that happen, the tragedy that happens that we feel absolutely helpless about, the one thing we can do is we can lament. We can go to the Lord and we can say, God, I, I don't know how to deal with those tragedies of those 18 people who just suddenly died in Maine because of one man's rampage. I, I don't know how I can help those people, particularly our brothers and sisters that are in Gaza right now that are dealing with some of these atrocities and being kidnapped and all the bombs, the people and the fear that the bombs coming in and all this stuff. I don't know what I can do to help them, but I can lament that this is a result of sin and I'm just going to ask Jesus, please come back. Please come back and set all things right. You see, that's what lament does. It, it causes, it moves us to say, Jesus, come back and set all things right. It awakens the sleepy soul. It puts our hope in God. And as we pray, we prioritize personal holiness. And we say, okay, I'm not going to contribute to this problem of sin. I'm not going to contribute to this, and so I'm going to prioritize personal holiness. I'm going to encourage others in the same way. So it energizes our prayer for Jesus to return and set all things right. Here's another blessing of lament is that it defangs temptation. It defangs temptation. What do I mean by that? What it does is that when we're lamenting over sin, all of a sudden the, 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 the promises, those empty promises that sin and temptation bring, those are all unmasked because we're seeing the effects. We're feeling the effects of sin in our lament. And we're saying that this is, this is bringing pain. This is bringing sorrow. This is bringing tragedy. This is bringing chaos. And I don't want to be any part of that anymore. See, it defangs temptation when we lament. And we say, okay, I, I, I got to see sin for how it is. Now, the purpose of the sermon series in this book is not for us to, okay, we just need to wallow in pity. And if I see anyone smiling here, you don't love God. <laughs> you know, that's not what this is about. What it is about, though, and there's a time for celebration, many times for it. And that's the end of this. But we have to see sin for how God sees it. And lament helps us do that. In our culture, I feel like we ignore that too much. We want to put on a happy face right away. Everything's good. Because, you know, when trials and difficulty comes, we've got to prove that we've overcome it, and we're strong, and we can endure that. And I tell you, I preach sermons I need to hear, okay? And so this is something that I have to work with. Lament, lament, lament. Uh, defangs temptation. Then one last thing I'll put in here. Is this is a lament is a much better response to sin than what our therapeutic world advocates. Now, what do I mean by that? The therapeutic world is very, very popular right now in the sense of like, you know, feelings are absolutely uh, what defines reality. Um, in the therapeutic world, it's, it's all about how someone is feeling in the moment and uh, that we must affirm that. Um, and, and really that's led to a whole host of problems in, 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 in rejecting reality and re, in rejecting a whole bunch of things. But see, lament is the opposite. Instead of just trying to determine one's own reality through positive feelings or through acceptance of things, what lament does is we say, this is bad. This, this is bad. And we need someone to set this right. And, and we need someone to intervene and, and get us to the hope here. And that person is Jesus, 
right? You see, see that, that's what lament is a much better thing. It's not about, okay, you've got to go and make your situation better. You've got to absorb all of the hurt and pain that people have done to you, and you've got to forgive them. It doesn't matter if they've repented or not. You've got to absorb that so that you feel better about yourself and so that you feel better about the circumstance. You see, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we deal with things in reality, and sometimes there's, there's, there's problems that have happened, and there's pain, and we have to deal with that. And again, I'm advocating forgiveness, but the point is, is that it's not about just about someone's feelings. It's about saying or 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 trying to 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 change the narrative to keep a positive uh, uh, a face. Lament says this is bad. I'm going to mourn this, but I'm going to look to one who can make the difference here. It's Jesus Christ. So lament truly is a gift. And so as we begin this sermon series, there's a lot of introductory, a lot of background stuff, a lot of kind of understanding what this book is about. I just wanted us to have a feeling for the gift that this book actually is for us, even though it's confusing in some of the way it's worded. Now you know that they're poems. So now you understand, oh, okay, that's the reason why. Sometimes, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I read the Bible. I'm like, how come you just couldn't say this simply? You know, I mean, but there's poetry going on here. Uh, so that's the reason why we've got to look at this a little bit uh, more in depth. We've got to see that this is actually a, a prayer for that space in between pain and promise, in between uh, heartbreak and hope is that this gift of lament. So take advantage of lament. Read the book. I encourage you to do so. Find comfort that even in the worst of situations that, uh, 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 that God is gracious and he's good and, and he's working his plan. We see this in the book here, uh, even though things are chaotic. So I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what's going on in your life. But you may need this idea of, okay, lament is the time. This is, this is the time for me to mourn sin of our land and in my own soul as well. Let me close with a quote by C.S. Lewis here. He says this, in his book, The Problem of Pain, which I encourage you to read, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So when was the last time you lamented your sin? When was the last time you lamented over the sin of the world? So take time to lament sin this week. Cry out to God about the atrocities committed by terrorist groups like Hamas. I don't always know what the best way for us to respond to situations like that or to the other things that we talked about in the beginning of the sermon. But I I do know that we can lament. And that may not be the only thing we do, but it's really the best place to start.